Justice Alito? Mr. Waxman, let me put on the table some of what is said by those who challenge your idea of amateurism. The briefs that are supported, that are submitted in support of the respondents paint a pretty stark picture. And they argue that colleges with powerhouse football and basketball programs are really exploiting the students that they recruit. <clears throat> they have programs that bring in billions of dollars. Uh, as Justice Thomas mentioned, this money funds enormous salaries for coaches and others in huge athletic departments. But the uh, athletes themselves uh, have a pretty hard life. They face training requirements that leave little time or energy for study, constant pressure to put sports above study, pressure to drop out of hard majors and hard classes, really uh, shockingly low graduation rates, only a tiny percentage ever go on to make any money in professional sports. So the argument is they are recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside without even a college degree. So they say, how can this be defended in the name of amateurism? Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. My podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I've got the episodes there, some show notes, some descriptions, and some resources that I link to on an episode-by-episode basis that you can check out for yourselves. Then I also have a blog I've been writing in, cagerredux.com. I haven't been writing much in that recently because I've been focusing on the podcast. In the blog, I bring you up to just before the Austin oral argument, and there's some good stuff there as well. And You can find that at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. My podcast can be found on all the major third-party directories, Google, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, Spotify, Apple, all those places. All right. Well, this is kind of the wrap-up episode on the prisoner's dilemma. And we're focusing on what the true nature of the relationship is between the NCAA and the Power Five. And in the last two episodes, we laid the foundation, the historical foundation, the structural foundation, the values-based foundation for the relationship between these two powerful entities who have been doing this dance of power exchange and cooperating in some areas at some times and then not cooperating in some areas at other times. But through the evolution of the big-time football product into the Power Five in the 21st century, these two interests have come together and are being held together by some glue that may not be apparent to most observers of college sports. And so that's what we're really going to drill down on in this episode. We're going to look at what the true incentives are for these two prisoners in the prisoner's dilemma. And I want to go back to Seth Waxman's answer to Justice Sotomayor's question about the role of the conferences as they relate to the NCAA and the way that this injunction order is going to play out for these limited education benefits. So when Justice Sotomayor says to Waxman, why don't we just let the conferences deal with these education-related benefits? Why does the NCAA need to be in control of these? And why are they so insistent on control? And then Waxman says, 
I mean, I think this court gave the answer to that question, Justice Sotomayor, in Board of Regents, which is this is a classic example of a prisoner's dilemma in which national agreement is the only solution. There is no doubt that what has happened with respect to the pay of college coaches and other professionals will happen if conferences or individual schools are permitted to remove these restrictions. So it's not clear exactly what Waxman is referring to here in terms of the need for national agreement. National agreement on what? And then he gives us a little bit of a hint with the example that he gives, coaching salaries and other professionals and the explosion in salaries that occurred when the market was opened up. And that is, I believe, an indirect reference to this law versus NCAA case, which he addressed just a couple of minutes earlier in response to questions from Justice Thomas, who was saying, wait a minute, we're in this amateurism model and you're trying to put all these limitations on athletes, but coaches make all this money. So Waxman invokes law of the NCAA and essentially says, look, these are adults. These are professionals. They're just like university presidents. So that's a different market. That harkens back, of course, to Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, where he says, amateur defines the participant, not the enterprise. And it's that fundamental hypocrisy that has been the bane of college sports for over a century. And the NCAA and the Power Five cling to that absurd formulation of their overall business model as it relates to their institutional interests. And it's ridiculous on its face. And Justice Thomas's question reflects that at a visceral level, at an intuitive level. How in the world can you justify compensation limits on these athletes when these coaches in the same enterprise, in the same business, are making millions and millions and millions of dollars. And then you're back to trying to to reconcile these two irreconcilable concepts and market practices within the same business model. And you come up with Miles Brand's exploitative collegiate model. So when Waxman was answering Sotomayor's question, he was really getting to the very core of this entire issue. And it's that issue, the way that the athletes' attorneys frame the case, the court really doesn't have to address. But this is it in a nutshell. And this is really what the NCAA is trying to preserve. So when Seth Waxman contextualizes his use of the prisoner's dilemma metaphor by pointing to coaching salaries, what he's saying is, is that compensation limits are essential to the product. And we have to have those at a national level. And that's really important. And the reason it's so important is that the primary thing that all of the market participants, but particularly the NCAA and the Power Five, have to coordinate and agree on at a national level is fixing the cost of labor at the value of an athletics scholarship. And that is the glue that ultimately binds the NCAA and the Power Five. And it's really important to understand how the Power Five fits into the NCAA regulatory umbrella, because even though it has achieved this independence at the governance level, at the business level, through Board of Regents, and then through autonomy classification in 2013-2014, which essentially gave them their own legislative process, the Power Five still operate under the NCAA umbrella. And what is the primary 
reason for that. And later in this episode, I'm going to get to a full list of all the things that the Power Five get from the NCAA that a lot of people don't talk a lot about. But I'm talking about right now, what is the fundamental essential thing that the Power Five gets through the NCAA? And that is the overarching national NCAA cap on compensating revenue-producing athletes. So you have that fixed labor cost set at the national level that hangs over all of the operations of the Power Five within the NCAA umbrella. And to tease this out a little more specifically and to help you understand how these two forces have sort of reconciled their interests to achieve what they both need, which is this cap, this salary cap, this price-fixing, illegal violation of antitrust laws that is imposed by the monopoly. So the NCAA imposes this overarching compensation limit on the value of the athlete's services, and it is the monopolistic actor in that one regulation, in that one limit market limitation. The Power Five operate within that and subject to it. And that is the fundamental glue that holds the NCAA and the Power Five together. Remember, I mentioned this in a prior episode, the athletes experts in Austin in putting together their experts reports that informed Judge Wilkins' decision and crafting her injunction that moved these education benefits away from the monopoly and to what the experts called the sub-cartel, which is the power five operating within the monopoly. The notion there was that these five market participants would have an incentive to compete for education-related benefits, which looks good on paper, but is fundamentally inconsistent with the way that that sub-cartel has brought together its interests to operate under the NCAA umbrella. And we really need to get a little more specific on this because it's so important to the prisoner's dilemma analysis. And I'm going to use Dan Rasher's expert report as the template for talking about what it is that the Power Five actually get from the NCAA in terms of their basic operations as a group of conferences. And Rasher is considered one of the leading experts in sports economics in the United States, and he has written prolifically on sports economics and the antitrust implications of NCAA compensation limits. And he testified for the athletes both in O'Bannon and in Austin. And in Austin, he put together about a hundred page report. It was an expert opinion report that was titled The Direct Testimony of Dr. Daniel A. Rasher. And in it, he basically synthesizes all of the work that he had done in the Austin case on behalf of the position that the athletes were taking. And he talks specifically about the relationship between the NCAA and the Power Five conferences at the business level. And he defines their interests. And this was with regard to formulating an opinion and a potential remedy that focused on conference competition. And then Rasher does a bit of history looking at how the conferences act independent of the NCAA 
to pursue their conference interests. And then he then brings that basic philosophy of competition into the current structure within the NCAA and the Power Five, and particularly in the context of this autonomy classification that the Power Five insisted upon in 2013 and 2014 under threat of secession from the NCAA so that they could get ahead of the wave of backlash to the NCAA's amateurism-based compensation limits that expressed itself during the O'Bannon litigation. And I've talked a lot about that in prior episodes and how the fear of what Judge Wilkin might do in O'Bannon really was as potent as what the court actually did and what the Ninth Circuit actually did. So the Power Five conferences demanded this additional autonomy and special status within the NCAA to legislate in certain defined areas that would give them the authority to offer an increased benefits package for the revenue-producing athletes to try to get ahead of the O'Bannon uncertainty. So Rasher talks about all of that and what it really means. And as I discuss Rasher's testimony in this expert report, I want you to keep in mind that what Seth Waxman is talking about in his quote, in that quote from the oral argument to Justice Sotomayor, is the connection between the NCAA and the Power Five. So those are the two prisoners. And some people could construe his comments as meaning that the prisoner's dilemma exists only between the five power conferences, and that their prisoner's dilemma is that one of those sub-cartel members goes rogue and starts offering benefits, then the cartel falls apart, which would probably be true. But that was the whole point, that the sub-cartel is anti-competitive, and we don't like cartels. And what's wrong with that? But in Waxman's thinking, in the NCAA's thinking, that sub-cartel is essential to the business model of big-time college sports, so long as it's under the NCAA umbrella and operating within this overarching amateurism-based compensation limit on the cost of labor. So Waxman wasn't really talking about this sub-cartel falling apart through competition for these limited, meaningless education-related benefits, because quite frankly, the NCAA could not care less about the actual injunction order that Judge Wilkin issued, because those limited education benefits through pose zero threat to the NCAA business model. They're only concerned about the Austin case because it was a vehicle to get their antitrust immunity argument to the U.S. Supreme Court, because the thing they're really concerned about protecting is this overarching compensation limit on the value of the athlete services, which is capped at the value of a full cost of attendance scholarship. And that is the overarching agreement, the national agreement that Waxman was referring to in his answer to Justice Sotomayor's question. And that national cap, that salary cap, is the glue, the primary glue that binds the Power Five and the NCAA. And that is the number one reason why there has been this cooperation. And if that is disrupted by a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, then this whole 
house of cards that's based on this oppressive compensation limit falls apart. And what Seth Waxman's trying to do is create this chicken little environment where if that happens, then it's just there's just going to be calamity. But that ignores some very important facts about the existing relationship between the Power Five and the NCAA that neither really wants to talk about because it exposes and isolates this naked price-fixing agreement between the Power Five and the NCAA. And the use of the NCAA and its monopolistic, monopsonistic control as the national regulatory authority as nothing more than a per se violation of antitrust laws. So in Rasher's report, he does an entire section. This is about a 100-page report. And and Rasher has a section uh, titled, Conference Competition is the Foundation of College Sports. And so he goes back and he talks about, historically, the fact that the conferences have always had their own products. So even though the Power Five exists as this sub-cartel, they don't need the NCAA for most of their functions, and they don't use the NCAA for most of their functions. And that's particularly true with respect to big-time football, because the NCAA doesn't conduct a championship in big-time football. The Power Five do that. The big-time football interests do that because of Board of Regents. So you have the big-time conferences, the Power Five conferences are competing right now in the marketplace for the best positioning with respect to the sale of broadcast rights for big-time football. And again, the NCAA has zero to do with regular season programming in any sport, at any level. They only deal in championships, and they don't get the football championship. The CFP is a separate, entirely separate beast. So in terms of the way that those conferences already operate under the Power Five iteration of big-time powerful football interests, the Big Ten and the ACC and the Big 12 and all, all the Power Five conferences, they compete with each other to try to get packages through Fox Sports and ESPN and, and all that. And they've done so pretty effectively, and the market's been pretty effective in sorting out that competition and making the product available and keeping those five competitors happy enough and financially secure enough for the product to exist. And that's what free markets do. And all five of those products are really good products because of this evolution and then the conference realignment. And then you have this football-driven juggernaut that is the Power Five. But they don't need the NCAA. They don't want the NCAA. They don't use the NCAA to engage in the most in the most basic functions of their business model, and that is to sell their product to consumers. And they do that through competition, inter-big-time Power Five conference competition. And then the NCAA has zero to do with their regular season schedules. They do that on their own. The NCAA has zero to do with the, as I mentioned, the, the postseason playoff. The NCAA has zero to do with the bowl games, these big bowl games that are tied into the CFP. All of that is managed at the business level by the conferences. And Rasher points out that even though the NCAA has control over the March Madness tournament, that postseason tournament, all of the other functionings 
of the business of big time uh, Division I men's basketball operates at the conference level. So when you're looking at really what the NCAA does, it, it is operating almost completely outside of authority and control over the big time conferences packaging of their two most valuable products. And that's football and big time men's basketball. That's done at the conference level. And Rasher put together an interesting chart showing a comparison in the role of the NFL and the NCAA in producing their football products. And remember, you know, FBS football, the you know, big time power five football operates completely uh, autonomous from the NCAA at the financial level. So in that comparison, basically the only thing that the NCAA does that the NFL also does with respect to those two products is set wage limits. So the NFL is micromanages the product, the NFL product, top to bottom in every way at the business level. The NCAA does none of that for big time Power Five football. But the one thing that they both do is they set wage limits. But there's a really important difference in the way that those wage limits are set in the NFL and the NCAA. The NFL sets those wages through collective bargaining where the players sit at the table and they negotiate on equal terms, on equal footing, with an equal balance of power with the NFL franchises and the owners, and they come to an agreement that works for both of them. The NCAA, there's no talk, there's no negotiation. They just impose this draconian compensation limit that is limited to the value of an athletic scholarship. And it's their way or the highway. And if you don't like it, you can't play. And it's that market arrogance and that fundamental unfairness that I think had at least four U- United States Supreme Court justices in the oral argument on March 31st just saying this is indefensible. And so the crux of Rasher's expert testimony through the conference competition model was that if they were competing for additional benefits, compensation-related benefits for the athletes, they would be operating pretty much the way they operate with respect to broadcast media outlets because they're competing for those. So why can't they compete for labor costs? And that teases out the real weakness in this house of cards business model. And that is that the primary glue that binds the cartel, the subcartel of the Power Five and the NCAA is this draconian amateurism-based compensation limit. And I'm going to talk more specifically in a few minutes about why the Power Five find that so attractive through the NCAA regulatory model, because they, they could go out on their own and do the same thing, but that poses some problems that we'll talk about in just a minute. But I want to just read one paragraph from Rasher's expert report, because it really gets to the heart of this relationship between the Power Five and the NCAA and the, the compensation limit. So this is, let's see, paragraph 178. Much more recently, the NCAA voting structure changed devolving from national control again so that the Power Five conferences could set a different scholarship cap within preset mandatory NCAA limits than the other Division I conferences 
And then those other conferences could choose to adopt the Power Five cap, adopt their own intermediate cap, or stay within the existing grant and aid cap from pre-2015. The NCAA calls this new system autonomy, but recognize it is not yet close to full conference autonomy. The Power Five conferences have to come together, all five of them voting as a group, and must reach a consensus across those five conferences, but only within the parameters on which the subjects that the NCAA as a whole has agreed to. This is both effectively a five-conference subcartel and one where the entirety of Division I still controls the maximum compensation and benefits that the Power Five are allowed to offer. Thus, in 2014, while the Power Five was empowered to go make its own rules, it still is prohibited from exceeding the cost of attendance scholarship without approval from the full Division I membership. When the Power Five took advantage of the new governance structure and in 2015 chose to adopt higher levels of compensation, the five conferences collectively agreed to adopt the maximum the larger cartel had allowed, making this new limit a binding constraint. As such, A less restrictive alternative would be for each of the so-called autonomous conferences, the Power Five, as well as all other Division I conferences to choose their own caps free from an overarching NCAA super cap and the need to agree as a five-conference sub-cartel. This would allow greater competition while allowing conferences to make collective decisions about their consumers' demand. The difference between having the Power Five decide collectively and having each Power Five conference decide on its own is the difference between a dominant cartel of virtually all major college sports leagues with tremendous market power on the one hand and a market full of individual leagues competing for the optimal market outcome on the other, as occurs in the broadcast rights market. So at least at the theoretical economic model level, removing the NCAA overarching cap that limits compensation for athletes at the value of a full cost of attendance scholarship and allowing the conferences to compete without regard to that cap for any additional compensation to athletes would resolve the problems with the overall cartel, the NCAA, and then this sub-cartel of the Power Five, but it doesn't answer the question of why they haven't done it. And to to answer that question, you have to look at what it is that they both get from this arrangement. And the number one principal benefit is the compensation limit. And one of the things that Rasher uh, points out very well in those, actually that was two paragraphs, in those two paragraphs is that the autonomy classification by its very definition requires collusion. It is the glue that binds the cartel together and it is based on this overarching compensation limit. That's why they have come together under the NCAA umbrella. And in my judgment, that's why the Power Five hasn't left the NCAA as it's threatened to do time and time again, most recently in 2013, 2014. And those in my judgment have 
have been empty threats. And I'm going to talk more specifically in a little bit about all of the things that the cartel, the sub-cartel, the Power Five get from the NCAA, in addition to this overarching amateurism-based compensation limit. But there, there's nothing stopping the NCAA or the Power Five conferences from saying tomorrow, we're done with amateurism. And then all these problems go away. The, the way that the NCAA and Power Five have framed their arguments in federal courts and before Congress is that they have no control over their choice to use amateurism to uh, impose a draconian compensation limit on the value of the athlete services. There's some celestial power, some uh, theological mandate that requires them to march forward under the banner of amateurism. That's just not true. And all the problems that are present in the current challenges to the NCAA and Power 5 business model are the product of their refusal to accept the fact that amateurism is a fraud. And they are just, they love the status quo. They've worked it out. It's a carefully calibrated status quo, and they are going to fight to the death to preserve it. So, yeah, this injunction, Judge Wilkins' injunction, theoretically permits, doesn't require, again, it's a purely permissive injunction that permits the Power Five conferences to compete for a, a very limited set of education-related benefits. And I don't think it's going to happen, even if the Supreme Court says we're just going to affirm the status quo in the Ninth Circuit and you know business as usual. I don't see the big-time conferences, the Power Five conferences, using the authority they have under Judge Wilkins' injunction to do anything. I don't think they're going to do anything. And then how do you prove that not doing anything is collusion? That's a tough case. So this brings us back to the reasons that these two prisoners, the NCAA and the Power Five in these separate cells, are driven to cooperation. So what I want to do now is just look at what it is that they each get from the status quo and from preserving the status quo. And then I want to talk a little bit about what they would lose if they went their separate ways and chose to pursue their interest independently, which as a practical matter would mean the Power Five conferences taking their product and moving it out completely outside of the NCAA, setting up a new association and completely restructuring the market of big time college sports. So in analyzing the incentives of the two prisoners, let me start with the easiest one and the most clear-cut one, and that is the incentives of the NCAA to preserve the status quo. And that is to preserve the March Madness revenue stream through the CBS Turner contract. And back when I was going through conference realignment, I said, you know, let's pay attention as we're talking about how these conferences have changed and what they look like on the back end. Let's look at what that means from a basketball standpoint. Because when you look at the Power Five conferences, they contain nearly every superpower in college basketball, with the exception of a couple of big e-schools. But the practical reality is that if the Power Five left the NCAA and they took their basketball product with it, 
which I think would be the most likely outcome, then the NCAA collapses. They have nothing. The national office is dead. All the executives, these fat cat executives who are getting ridiculous money from that contract, their, you know, their gravy train comes to a screeching halt and the NCAA national office falls apart. And what you're left with is a high school association like NCAA that has limited authority, that has virtually no revenue-generating capacity. And then it has to return to its original roots when it was formed in 1906, and that was really to provide some very basic infrastructure at the national level to facilitate intercollegiate competition at a national level. And then, you know, that's that. So basically, the NCAA ceases to exist in its current form, and the people who have the greatest incentive to preserve it are the people in the national office who are getting filthy, filthy rich off of this unholy triangle between the national office, basketball money, and big-time powerful football interests. So that's why the NCAA is fighting like hell, because its bureaucratic survival is at stake here, and it is not going to go gently or quietly. Seth Waxman's arguments made that abundantly clear on March 31st. So, okay, so we know what the NCAA wants out of this. And it has has nothing to do with preserving amateurism and the revered tradition of amateurism or the student athlete or the collegiate model or any about of that. It's about money and preserving the NCAA bureaucracy. So now let's look at what the Power Five get from the current relationship and what they would lose. Because this is much more complicated, and there are some benefits to the Power Five that nobody really talks about when these discussions about, you know, why hasn't the Power Five just gone out on its own voluntarily? And I want to talk about a few of those. And I guess I also want to note on the front end of this discussion that there are a lot of people outside of the existing status quo business model, like reform groups, who have suggested that the best way to fix the broken big-time college sports system is just to take the big revenue-producing products out of the NCAA and make them a separate association so that they can operate the way that they should be operating, essentially as standalone for-profit business enterprises. And uh, the Knight Commission has suggested that. I think uh, Arnie Duncan, former Secretary of Education, who now I think is with the Knight Commission, made that recommendation not too long ago, and it was uh, quickly batted down by both the NCAA and the Power Five, which was interesting because, you know, the Power Five has used that threat of leaving uh, to get its way under the NCAA umbrella. And I think it shows really that kind of exposes the fact that uh, everybody's really happy with the status quo. And also, you know, when you look at Rasher's model, the competition model, and you look at the extent to which the Power Five conferences are already doing their own thing outside of the NCAA, you say, well, how difficult would it be for the Power Five just to take their show and set up a new shop and keep all that money to themselves, including the basketball money, which is now spread around by the NCAA national office. And so it looks appealing on its face, but again, it, it ignores some of these incredible benefits that the Power Five get from the NCAA. And so in the context of preserving the amateurism-based compensation limits, the Power Five, which is a relatively new product, as I 
talked about in the last couple of episodes and the evolution of the big time football market into this juggernaut power five. So that's kind of a new beast. But the NCAA's commitment to amateurism and its grooming of the amateurism-based arguments through propaganda, through managing these antitrust cases, through congressional lobbying, has enormous value. And amateurism is tied to the NCAA brand, not specifically the Power Five brand. So if the Power Five were to leave the NCAA and they tried to operate as an education nonprofit and adhered to amateurism-based compensation limits and principles, they would have to defend those in an entirely new context. And they would have to do it themselves. They wouldn't have the NCAA doing it for them. So I think that that puts the Power Five in a really difficult bind if they want to hold on to these ridiculous amateurism-based rules. And they very likely would because they have been in lockstep with the NCAA on that one thing, and that is the glue that binds those two interests. So If the Power Five went out on its own and it wanted to try to drag along some amateurism camouflage, it could bring along the group of five or maybe some other groups of schools that are clearly not in the business of big-time college sports to try to pass the blush test with the IRS. But that's a tough sell, I think. And, you know, you you pull those 65 schools out of a membership of 1,100 schools and put them into something smaller where they are clearly the product and and there's no way to mask it. (laughs) I think that they are looking at and inviting scrutiny from the IRS and perhaps federal courts from an antitrust standpoint. So they get enormous benefit, not just from the NCAA's connection to and history with amateurism and its grooming of those arguments for cases just like Austin and then this campaign in the Senate where the NCAA has been driving the train because they eat the cost of that. And I'll get to that in a second. But they also get to hide, the Power Five get to hide in this amateurism forest and it provides camouflage that justifies their nonprofit status and allows them to operate as credible and legitimate nonprofits. So then, so they get that, and that's a really important piece of the puzzle. Then they also get the overhead for all of the administrative costs paid for by the March Madness contract and the NCAA national office. So if the Power Five went off on its own in whatever form it it winds up uh, taking, it's going to have to replicate a bureaucracy that already exists that they don't have to pay for. So because of Board of Regents, football keeps all its money and then all these ridiculous expenses at the NCAA national office, they're paid by Division I men's basketball players, not by Division I football players. And that's a huge benefit. And when you look at it, knowing that if the Power Five went out on their own, they're very likely to be looking at some pushback, whether it's you know administrative or through litigation. They're going to have to eat all those expenses. And I just want to say, I haven't really taken a sharp pencil to the legal costs that the NCAA has incurred in the antitrust wave and also in their congressional campaign in Congress. And then all this farming out of expertise to third-party consultants and experts and service providers, which has grown exponentially under Mark Emmert. The NCAA has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the, just in the last 10 years 
So just in O'Bannon and Austin alone and looking only at legal expenses, the NCAA has paid nearly half a billion dollars either in settlement or in legal fees or in other administrative costs. That's a massive chunk of change. And if the Power Five went out on their own and they had to recreate a bureaucracy to duplicate what the NCAA has, and they had to eat their own legal fees, big time football would have to eat its own legal fees, then you're looking at a much different level of risk for the Power Five. And you might say, well, it's a smaller group, so their potential liability is limited. No, that's not the way it works. An antitrust suit is an antitrust suit, and an antitrust violation is an antitrust violation. Whether you've got 65 members or 1,100 members, the question is, who pays for the legal fees and who pays for the loss? You know, who pays the damages? And right now, that is Division I men's basketball and the NCAA national office. So you're looking at a fundamentally different risk equation for the Power Five if they were to break out from the NCAA. And in addition to the overhead, the legal fee overhead, that the NCAA pays for the Power Five. That bureaucracy also underwrites the expenses for the infractions and enforcement process. It pays for some ancillary benefits, you know, the insurance products and all of the things that are necessary to conduct business as a national association. All of that would have to be replicated to some degree if the Power Five went out on their own. And the potential costs there, I think, are very difficult to calculate, but they could be massive. So uh, that's a pretty pretty good incentive. You know, in this prisoner's dilemma equation, it's a pretty good incentive for the Power Five to kind of stay in this cooperation mode. And then you also have a really important benefit that gets virtually no attention. And that is the Power Five gets the benefit by staying in the NCAA of a Supreme Court ruling in 1988, um, Tarkanian versus NCAA, that essentially lets the NCAA operate as a rogue administrative state without any external accountability. And, you know, Tarkanian's a case that very few people talk about, but I think it explains more than any other factor why the NCAA bureaucracy is so arrogant and so indifferent to the rights of the athletes. And it's lazy and sloppy in the execution of its basic functions, particularly when it comes to infractions and enforcement. And so in Tarkanian, and this Tarkanian, the name of the case comes from Jerry Tarkanian. A lot of you may have heard of him. He was a famous basketball coach at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And he had some great teams, but he was viewed by the NCAA as a rogue actor in big time college sports. He was one of the bad actors, quote unquote, that the NCAA and its allies always talk about. And he became really the poster boy for NCAA corruption at the institutional level. And the NCAA basically launched a crusade to ruin Tarkanian and the UNLV product. And that resulted in litigation that lasted for decades. And ultimately, Tarkanian was vindicated and he walked away with a couple million dollars and he didn't back down. But the NCAA treated him like vermin. In fact, the district court judge in that case, after 
discovery and seeing some of the things the NCAA was saying about Tarkanian behind the scenes from internal memorandum that were produced. Uh, he described the NCAA's tactics as akin to Adolf Eichmann and the Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> so pretty strong rhetoric. But, you know, the NCAA used its administrative authority with the sense of brutality in those days. And I think that still exists. It's just been whitewashed a little bit. So there was bad blood there. And Tarkanian believed that the NCAA had denied him due process and pressuring UNLV to take action against Tarkanian, basically to ruin his career. And the NCAA had all these allegations against Tarkanian, and they, they said he, he's bad news, he's got to go, and that if NLV didn't get rid of him, then UNLV was going to be in trouble. So Tarkanian sues the NCAA, claiming that he was denied basic federal due process protections in the way that the NCAA conducted its investigation and its determination that Tarkanian needed to go. And that case wound up in the United States Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court held that the NCAA did not need to provide federal due process protections to Tarkanian or anybody else because it wasn't a state actor. And in order for federal constitutional requirements to apply, you have to prove that the action taken against you is state action. And the Supreme Court, and this was a 1988 decision, the Supreme Court looked at the overall composition of the membership of the NCAA across its three divisions and said, this is a private entity and it is not a state actor for the purposes of these due process protections. And that was a huge win for the NCAA because it meant that they basically weren't accountable for the tactics they used in imposing their administrative authority through these draconian regulations, not just with respect to athlete compensation, but recruiting and and other uh, non-compensation-based eligibility requirements, like the transfer rule and the scholarship limits and all of those things that wound up in antitrust litigation. But from an administrative standpoint, the NCAA has been allowed to operate as this rogue administrative state with state-like powers, but not state-like responsibility or accountability. So they basically operate in the darkness. And you know, I've referenced this in the last episode, and that is such an important feature of the NCAA's basic business model and the climate and culture that has developed over decades in the NCAA national office, and in particular with its infractions and enforcement process. So what does that mean for the Power Five? It means that if they went out on their own, they probably wouldn't have the protection of Tarkanian for two reasons. One, that protection applies to the NCAA. The, there wasn't a group of conferences that were named that had an independent identity that could claim the benefit of the Tarkanian ruling. They get it only through their association with the NCAA. But more importantly, if you take the Power Five and you put them out as a freestanding product. And if the analysis with respect to state action is the composition of the membership, you have a fundamentally different discussion. And the Power Five has 65 schools and 53 of them are public entities, which using the Tarkanian framework of the overall composition of the association, public-private, you've got a really strong case 
that the Power Five as a standalone set of conferences is a state actor because of the uh, dominance of, of state institutions. And there was a, another Supreme Court case in 2000, just 12 years after Tarkanian, involving a state high school association that arose in Tennessee, in the Tennessee State High School Association, was sued by a school in Tennessee who had been punished by the state association. And the school said, look, you know, we didn't get any due process protections here. And this was a kangaroo process. And we believe that we were entitled to federal due process protections, making the same argument that Jerry Tarkanian made in in his suit against the NCAA. And so that case goes to the Supreme Court as well. And looking at the composition, overall composition of the Tennessee State High School Association, which was about 85% public schools, the U.S. Supreme Court reached a much different result than in Tarkanian, and it held that the Tennessee Association was indeed a state actor, even though it was structured as an education nonprofit and ostensibly private. It was in fact a state actor because of the composition of its membership. And the public-private composition of the Power Five is almost identical to the public-private composition of the Tennessee Athletic Association. And I don't know how the U.S. Supreme Court or a federal court could reach a result looking at the Power Five in light of Brentwood that it is a private entity. And that is, again, a huge protection for the Power Five under the NCAA umbrella that they very likely wouldn't have outside of it. So, and then there's another thing that the Power Five have been able to do, and this applies both to football and basketball, all of their products, is that through this rolling hostile takeover of the governance process and then the increasing independence that they gained by separating themselves through the rulemaking process, and the the autonomy classification is the perfect example of this, the Power Five, by getting this special treatment within the NCAA umbrella and with the NCAA overarching amateurism-based compensation limits, they have created a near insurmountable advantage over any potential spoilers in the Division I marketplace. So the uh, Power Five get, got a lot of credit back during the pendency of O'Bannon and through this autonomy process. Of, yeah, they're trying to do the right thing for the athletes, and they offered them some additional nominal benefits, nothing game-changing, and still subject to this overarching NCAA compensation limit. But in fact, what they really got was a package that they could sell in the marketplace to revenue-producing athletes, potential revenue-producing athletes, that was far superior to anything that the next tier of conferences could offer. And, you know, autonomy applies only to the Power Five. So that separation between the Power Five and the next tier, the group of five, or any other group of potential spoilers, grew substantially through autonomy legislation and then got cemented in because the other conferences are frozen out of having the opportunity to provide those benefits. And you know, I've I've gone back and looked at the group of five form nine nineties and looked at how much revenue they bring in, and it is just a paltry level of revenue compared to what the Power Five conferences are bringing in. And there are some schools in that group of five category that really want to run with the big dogs and want to join the Power Five or be competitive with them, and they're going broke trying to keep up 
because the spending, the athletic spending in the Power Five is so overwhelmingly greater than the next group of competitors that the group of five you know, they're spending all this money and they're losing ground. And that's in large part because of this protected status that the Power Five have as the autonomy conferences and schools. And if they went out on their own and they didn't take the group of five, maybe the group of five assumes that role either within the NCAA umbrella or maybe they move out on their own. And then all of a sudden, the free market determines how they gain a competitive advantage or avoid losing a competitive advantage, not NCAA regulations or an NCAA structure that gives preferential treatment to the Power Five. So there are all kinds of potential downsides to the Power Five of leaving the NCAA. And when I was walking through the events of the perfect storm and the fault lines that were exposed during COVID among the powerful interests in big-time college sports and the cracks that it showed between the NCAA and the Power Five, and then within the Power Five with the Big Ten and the Pac-12 going a different way on fall football, that suggested that there was some potential for there to be some separation of interests and this cooperation model may be at risk. And I think there's some of that, at least at the discussion level. But when you look at a practical level of what that looks like on the backside, I think you see that really the only option for these heavy hitters in the business of big-time college sports is to cooperate to preserve the status quo. And with respect to that fall football split between the major conferences, I think it's important to note that regardless of the motivations of the Big Ten and the Pac-12, and we're probably not going to know that the way that they hid their discussions about those decisions, but whatever their motivations, they quickly came to a view after initially saying they weren't going to play, that they were losing a massive competitive advantage to the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 by not playing and by not participating in the college football playoff. Because once the regular season started with those three conferences, it looked like the CFP was on board with having their national playoff, which they have incentive to do to get the payday, with just these three conferences. And if you play that, press fast forward on that, and you see a CFP that excludes the Big Ten and the Pac-12, that could be a huge and long-lasting hit to those two conferences in the recruiting game because they really weren't playing ball with, with the other three conferences or the CFP. And so I think that probably was a driving factor in them reversing course after, what, five weeks to get back on the train. So I think if there was any sense that they were kind of flirting with asserting their independence from the Southern football schools, as occurred in the 1970s when the CFA was formed and the Big Ten and the Pac-8 were at war with them, any suggestion that that made any sense at all in 2020, I think evaporated when the Big Ten and the Pac-12 reversed course. And they came to acknowledge, I think, at least implicitly, that the Power Five conferences absolutely need to work together to preserve their collective business interests, particularly when it came to the big paydays, the championship paydays in the postseason. So I don't see any realistic threat. And I think that the flirting with that in fall football 
probably brought everybody back to reality on the cooperation model. So I don't really see a scenario where it's every conference for itself outside of the NCAA. And regardless of what happens in Austin, there's always going to be this really powerful incentive for the NCAA and the Power Five conferences to cooperate and not turn on each other. So that doesn't mean Austin isn't consequential. It is, but primarily because it's going to inform the next step for the Power Five and the NCAA. And there will be some decisions that have to be made there that where there could be tension between those two interests. But when push comes to shove, as with all these false threats of the Power Five leaving the NCAA, when push comes to shove, they wind up back at the same place for the same reason, and that is cooperation, because they want to pursue this overarching cap on the value of athlete labor. And that is the essential component of their basic business model, and they're not going to let that go. They're going to have to be told that it has to go. So, you know, Austin is going to be important because it's going to dictate the the next steps and whether the NCAA and Power Five are going to have to go back to Congress and try to work a little, a little harder to, to get something that they might not get from the U.S. Supreme Court. Because it's important to remember that in Austin, if the Supreme Court doesn't grant an antitrust immunity judicially, the NCAA and Power Five can still go back to Congress to get that. But the basic philosophy of cooperation, I think, is going to remain intact. And then there are dozens of other ways that this could play out, keeping the basic framework together and intact. And the Power Five have uh, been very effective at getting what they want within the NCAA umbrella. And I could see a situation where they get even greater autonomy with respect to compensation limits under the NCAA umbrella that, at least on its face, appears to address some of the anti-competition concerns that are raised when the NCAA is acting through its monopoly or monopsonistic authority. That could be a pathway, and how that plays out will be probably determined in subsequent litigation unless the NCAA gets absolute immunity from antitrust liability, which I think is unlikely. So there you have it. I mean, that's the prisoner's dilemma. And the way that that dilemma has evolved historically and then has really become a little more tenuous in the COVID era and with the change in Congress and with the Austin oral argument, I think that you can you can see some cracks in the foundation, but I just don't see a massive disruption in the business model with the Power Five taking their ball and moving it outside of the NCAA altogether. So that closes out the prisoner's dilemma analysis. And in my next episode, I want to talk about what I think some of the likely scenarios are with the Supreme Court's decision and what the next steps may be for the NCAA uh, and Power Five, depending on what the Supreme Court does. And then after that, I said earlier I was going to do some episodes on gender equity. I think I'm going to hold off on that until after the Supreme Court rules. I'll address it in a limited way in my next group of episodes, which I think is going to be devoted to the big myths that the NCAA propagates to defend its amateurism-based compensation limits. And boy, they they threw them out with alacrity during the Austin case in the briefing and then at oral argument. And I think it's really important 
to dispel some of those myths and expose just how weak they are. Because the NCAA, again, has been so effective at propagandizing those myths. And with the compliant sports media and mainstream media, they rarely get called out or analyzed. And when you do that, you can see how really bad it is for the NCAA to be making some of these arguments. And you come to this kind of response that Justice Kavanaugh had in response to the justification for the compensation limits, and you kind of scratch your head and say, this is this is just a circular, ridiculous argument. In all honesty, it's really a disturbing argument that you're making here. And that's kind of how I feel about a lot of the NCAA propaganda. But you have to break it down and you have to really explain why it is nonsensical and made in bad faith just to preserve these compensation limits that exploit revenue-producing athletes. All right, so that closes it out. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope to see you back for the next episode of The Big Amateur monologues. Take care.